From FingerLakes1.com, welcome to episode number 53 of the Debrief Podcast. I'm Josh Durso, and today we have just so many people in studio, it's crazy. <laughs> Ted Baker and Jackie Augustine and myself all at the same time. The dream team has been assembled. This <laughs> is happened. really exciting. You're going to want to keep the camera looking that way more often Yeah, this one. Yeah. Don't worry, yeah. we will. We will, don't <laughs> no. worry. And thankfully, most people listen to this podcast, they don't watch it, so that, that's, that's good too. Um, we have so many different things to talk about, and I think we're going to be able to get some different perspectives that we haven't been able to get before because all three of us are here at the same time talking yeah. about some of this stuff. Um, biggest headlines as always, but we're going to start things off with a personal frustration of mine. Um, so blue-green algae, that lovely stuff that, that comes and it goes. It's this mysterious thing that the state is spending tens of millions of dollars to understand. Um, but... As we see more and more of these reports, this portion of the lake is closed. This beach is closed. I think in the last two weeks there have been, what, had something like maybe a half dozen different closures and maneuvers yeah. in Cuga and Seneca and Hanioi and Canandaigua Lakes, Skinny Atlas Lake. Um, I'm starting to wonder, do we need a lot more in terms of community education? Because we had gotten a message um, over the weekend on the FingerLakes1.com Facebook page uh, a person basically asked, and, and I'm summarizing, but just barely summarizing. They said, I read from a lot of different places that Cayuga Lake is not safe. Is Seneca Lake safe? Oh. Wow. So are we to a point now where the number of this beach, this area is closed? Like the, the closure reports that are coming out are becoming too plentiful and we don't have enough community education happening about what HABs are. And I know there are some different organizations, Seneca Lake, Pure Waters, et cetera, et cetera, that are trying to do this. But are we to a point now where maybe the state or maybe some of the, the health departments need to do more public campaigning, educating people about what what HABs are and then also, you know, what that means and how they work? Because you can get an HAB uh, or you can you can get an algal bloom in one area and an hour later it can be gone and as long as you don't come in direct contact with it right. you're okay but does something need to do I, i'm curious what you guys think in terms of does something need to change so that we get to a point where um people don't have that really sort of i don't even they don't even ha seem to have a baseline knowledge about what these things are despite how frequently it's popping up in the headlines well, it's frequently, but they're also very widely scattered. So I think, like you say, a lot of people, it hasn't affected their beach they go to yet. And we do need to know a lot more about what these things are. You mentioned Seneca Lake Pure Waters. I have them on once a month and talking to John Socia from Seneca Lake Pure Waters Association. And, and nobody's even sure yet whether they're necessarily a bad thing. They're a bad thing temporarily if you can't swim at the beach, but are they part of the natural cycle of nature in a lake. In other words, are they something we should knock down or something that we really would be better off to let go? Well, that's interesting. That's completely different. And, and we don't know yeah. the answer to that yet. Right. Yeah, and I think part of it is, I, and I'm sure you've seen you know, on social media or whatever, people sharing pictures and saying, is this something I need to avoid? Is this? Because I, I think in general, anytime people see any kind of algae in the water, any, any right. bloom, any growth, People get a little skittish, and I so I do think that 
And I have seen some attempts to say, you know, here's what differentiates the blue-green algae from the others because I mean it's not it's not the color you're not going to really unless you're an expert you're not going to be able to look at it and say oh that looks the tint of that is slightly different um, but there are certain characteristics of the blue green algae that would help you identify them but I don't know how in an area where you're balancing not just residents but also tourists who are coming in not just from outside the state but just even from the immediate area to use some of the beaches and parks to really understand when a sign goes up and says you can't use this beach keep your dogs away from it because there is this bloom I don't think that's enough for people to walk away and say, oh, I understand what's happening here and I'll know when it's okay. I, I think it just, it does scare people off. So Yeah, yes. I think a lot of people don't know the difference between an actual harmful algal bloom and the green stuff that you see in kind of any shallow, warm body of right. water. I right. mean, right. where I put my kayak in down near my house has green, slimy stuff all over the water, but I know that it's nothing harmful. Right. right. And you don't want a perfectly clear lake. If our lake were entirely clear, and I'm, okay, I, our lake, I'm always talking about Seneca Lake, but you know, any of the Finger Lakes, um, and this was the issue with the zebra mussels, right? Like you don't want crystal clear water because that's not necessarily your healthiest lake. And, uh, you know, I think the question underlying this, which I'm sure Seneca Lake Pure Waters or other groups are looking at, is what kind of stuff is going into the lake which is causing certain types of algae to grow and thrive and maybe crowd out or otherwise harm other more healthy you know instances of green stuff that we might see in the lake that help the fish population that help just the cleaning and and health of the lake in general i am curious at this point and i i did request uh, i made a request to the comptroller's office in albany to, to sort of figure out what the spending has looked like over the last couple of years uh, in relation to not only uh, understanding, studying, and addressing HABs, but also water quality, because mm -hmm. I know drinking water quality has been a huge issue in Owasco Lake and, and some of the other lakes as well. Um, how much money has been spent, and, and through the process of dumping wads and wads of cash at this issue, did it not go off in anyone's mind that they might need to take a, a new approach to... Uh, not only alerting the public about an outbreak or, or a potential bloom when one appears, but then also sort of providing that information so that they understand what is what is actually going on. I mean, I wasn't given any indication that the, the comptroller's office is even aware what an AJB is. Their deputy press director even said as much. He, he asked me what the term was when I asked him what the spending was. So that that is the, to me, there seems to be a, a, a gap between where we are and where we need to be. Even thinking back to, I believe, was it uh, Red Jacket was the last beach that was, right. that was recently closed. Um, and that was over the 4th of July weekend. I recall getting a press release on either Wednesday or Thursday. And then the press release said it will be tested again on Monday. And it was radio silence until, I think, Tuesday or Wednesday the following week when it was reopened or when it was publicized that it was reopened. There was no attempt to reach out to, to – and, and that over a busy weekend. It, to me, it's just like these are the things that have to change in order for people to actually understand. Because that on the surface, if you only know that a beach is closed for like six or seven days – 
that sounds like something terrible. Like it sounds horrible. It sounds yeah. like something, if a beach was closed for seven days, I might really consider whether when it's open, if I really want to go there right. or not. Right. So yeah, that's I, the, you know. Well, I mean, I'm interested to know what you, you finally figure out as far as overall spending, because yes, it is discouraging that the comptroller's office didn't know the term and seemed not to be able to Google it and figure out what it was. Um, but, but with an issue this complex, there's the public education piece, but then there are like figuring out the underlying factors that would help you even figure out what to tell the public. Because to me, the bigger conversation, the more important public education campaign needs to be, if this is the issue we think it is, um, how do we, what steps can we take to actually affirmatively start addressing it so that this isn't our experience in the summer in the Finger Lakes in perpetuity. Like, well, and what's interesting to me is that most of the information and most of the monitoring is taking place with private organizations. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I mean, the state isn't really that involved. I mean, they may announce a beach closure or something, but it's, it's all these private groups and kind of crowdsourced science that are out there monitoring the streams to see what's going in and, and putting up a map of where these blooms are. So it doesn't look like the issues really even made the radar screen yet at the state level. Yeah. And that's amazing because two years ago it was $64 million yeah. that was spent to study and to understand. You know, obviously a couple lakes locally were excluded from the funding from the study itself. But, I mean, you would have thought by now that there would be a little more information known and maybe a little more shared publicly in right. terms of understand or you know sort of aware the awareness piece of it um but that's not the only interesting story we're going to talk about today out of albany uh governor cuomo has is is taking on another another energy uh company because of something that went wrong uh what was it a four hour a four hour in total just blackout, under four just hours under four hour blackout in new york city and he was, as I as I understand, talking about stripping their Con Ed's license. Is that that is one of the headlines that I saw? Right. He essentially said they can be replaced. They have a franchise with the city, just like any you know cable mm -hmm. franchise or whatever. And, um, and well, I brought this issue up to you that that it goes back to when we had the the storms here in the Finger Lakes, and there's become this expectation that electricity should always be on 100% perfect and then if it isn't it should be fixed in minutes and and I've said if you're an electric utility you can't just have a hundred trucks and 500 guys sitting there on standby it takes time when these things happen I mean we we expect it all to be perfect all the time it's interesting because I, I thought back to the the windstorm in western New York um, back a couple of years ago, that was I believe it was 2017 when that happened. That was probably one of the last instances where um, you know you get the the state investigation launched into response. And mm -hmm. if you just follow sort of the the beaten pulse of these companies, they're like any other company where they're downsizing. NYSEG employs far less people than they did 20 years ago, um, and it it doesn't really seem that far fetched if you just do some basic deductions why it might take a little bit longer to restore power. Not only the fact that, you know, you've also, I guess, probably got these really complex matters involved too, where, you know, aging infrastructure, infrastructure that wasn't right. built to tolerate what we're, what we're putting on it on a daily basis. And those things on top of the manpower issue and the changes in the technology, and I'm assuming 
there's probably a little bit of updating that's happening when they're going in and they're changing some. They aren't restoring it to 1995 uh, point. They're restoring it to 2019 standard. And I would assume that it is the process is probably just a little bit different. And I believe they had said that, that this particular outage was linked to a security flaw of some kind or some kind of issue. Um, if he were really going to make a stand and if he were really going to talk about something, he would probably be talking about that and, and the technical aspect right. and how the state can support companies like Con Ed and NYSEG and RG&E and all these others who are providing a public service and need... Uh, need the right kinds of supports from the state to be able to keep doing what they're doing in a very different world than existed 20 years ago. At least that's what, you know, and we typically don't see it. So is it bluster? Because that's what it ends up feeling like. Where <laughs> from Governor it's, Cuomo? From, yeah. From the, from, yeah, a pretty good chance. <laughs> it's just, it isn't anything no. <laughs> substantive. And it puts you, it puts the state in a, in this sort of cycle where we're just talking about this big flashy thing and obviously that's been a theme on the show over right. and over and over and over again um but it, it just it doesn't really seem to benefit anyone like what is what is the reasonable next step in this scenario is is governor cuomo actually going to strip con ed's license i mean he he attempted to throw spectrum out of the state for for not expanding broadband access the way they uh had promised and even that as of a couple weekends ago a settlement had been reached and that was dusted off and finished so is the governor is the governor any ever going to hold anyone accountable i don't know how you would i mean i don't think there's a whole bunch of electric companies standing by waiting to grab the franchise for new york city and i, I just found it was fascinating of all the things in our lives, I mean, think about what percentage of the time does the electricity not work? I mean, it's always on. You flip a switch and it's there. And usually when it isn't on, a few hours later it's fixed. But if you have a massive regional outage that's going to take literally calling in trucks and crews from other states, then, you know, it might be a couple of days if you're way down at the end of a dirt road in the middle of nowhere. Well, and the funny part is, is like, okay... Yes, it's a big deal, and yes, power should be restored as quickly as it can be, reasonably speaking. But can you remember the last time the power went out? Can do you remember the date? I was thinking of that. that the and power no, went I out the last time. I don't remember time? at my house, Jackie. Yeah, well, I mean, only related to you know an accident or something where right. you know there's. But but I mean, and I understand that, and I certainly agree that um, you know it is a first world problem to feel that uh, a couple of hours without electricity I mean unless you are a hospital or a nursing home although those you know the protocols Hello, are generators. in place right for, <laughs> for that but you know I, I agree with that but I will also say that I think that um, there is still something to be said for holding um, these businesses to account to be maintaining and updating infrastructure and not waiting for an issue to identify, oops, we probably should have addressed that. You know, the ongoing maintenance, upgrades, and trying to right-size your system for your demand and changing technology needs to be an ongoing piece, and it shouldn't be cut 
in order for profits to increase, you know, it, it needs to be part of the franchise agreement, a certain standard of care for the existing system for the grid. But that, um, I don't think that was the more nuanced point that the governor was trying to make. I wish it was. Well, and it's interesting because when you frame it like that, I think back to the, the Western New York windstorm and, and the pressure that was put on companies like RG&E and NYSEG for how they responded to um, it, the response aspect from those individual companies. And, you know, it kind of almost feels like extortion because they had to pay millions of dollars to the state and really all they had to do in exchange, uh, their punishment, I guess you would say, was to come up with a better plan for the next time right. it happened. Had nothing to do with, with making, you know, putting the wires underground so that they don't blow over the next time the wind comes along. Um, it, it just, it feels like this, this process that the state has almost, under Cuomo's administration, become pretty comfortable with using uh, the companies as a, a battering ram to get through the wall of funds that they need to that they need to get to on the other side. Well, one of the themes that we bring up a lot, and, and it, it goes to what Jackie just said, is that there's too much of our government is dealing with a crisis of the day rather than the larger issues. The larger issue is. Yeah, how are we going to protect the infrastructure? Instead of making us take our shoes off at the airport, we should be worried about the vulnerability of these infrastructures to any sort of terrorist attack or anything. So it, it's always, but it's always the headline crisis of the day. Oh, you didn't fix the outage, rather than okay, electric utilities all over the state who have these franchise agreements and have responsibilities to their communities. Are you maintaining your infrastructure, and and are you? as ready as you can be. In terms of response to an emergency, I, you know, what more can you do? You can only roll out so many trucks and so many crews and you have to find each piece of line that's out and hook it back up and it's a time consuming process. And, and yeah, and that, that is the, the, the issue seems to be rooted in people and some of these companies might need more people. And how do you respond to a disaster of any kind more quickly? You have more people to respond to it. And it doesn't really seem to be any more complicated than that, but I guess these big fancy plans that cost millions of dollars are probably also really helpful. But it's like what Jackie said is those are the things that need to be put into the agreements in the first place, right. not, not being debated after the fact, yeah. after it's too late. So there are changes coming to an event that uh, is pretty significant here in the Finger Lakes. Uh, Muscle Man has been sold. Uh, yeah. This was a story that popped up in the Finger Lakes Times yesterday or the day before maybe. Um, but interesting because I think a lot of people who aren't connected to the event uh, were either very surprised by it or just weren't weren't really aware of, of how something like this might even work out right. or happen. Um, so I guess, Jackie, if you could just sort of give us the, the, the bare bones sort of explanation of how we got here and what this means. Um, well, the World Triathlon Corporation, which is owned by Wanda Group, which you might have seen advertising behind the World Cup, they're a big Chinese conglomerate. They have real estate, they have events, they've been buying up uh, sporting events around the world. And anyway, they um, that's just one piece of their portfolio. Uh, the World Triathlon Corporation, I would describe as having been stalking the muscle man for years and years now because it's competition. They don't like independent races. They want anybody who does a multi-sport event to be in an Ironman. So 
in other communities, this is what they do. They move in, they make an offer, they try to buy it, they then shut it down. Maybe they operate it for a few years, they change some things, and then it goes away. Um, so Jeff Henderson, uh, the creator, founder, you know, originator of the Muscle Man, had kept them away for many, many years uh, because it's really the opposite of the values of the race. And um, then, uh, you know, after the events um, in, in 2013 and the, the, the deaths, um, he decided to turn it over to um, Score This, who had been with it from the beginning. They've been the timing company from the beginning, so they, they're part of kind of the ethos of the, the race and have seen every piece of it um, with an understanding that independent races matter. And now, um, unfortunately, they decided to sell. I think, you know, WTC must have made an offer they couldn't refuse, not to use that language, but, you know. And um, it's just really unfortunate because I think had the community known and had a heads up that this might be on the horizon, there were so many of us who had fought against it over the years that I, I think we would have stepped forward and said, no way, we're not going to let this happen. Mm -hmm. um, and I know Jeff's statement to the paper said as much, that he would have bought it back and, and continued it. But that wasn't really given as an option, and I think that's what seems difficult because, um, you know, I don't want to turn this into a philosophical issue. I'm going to write my column about this kind of ship of Theseus problem, like what makes something what it is. Um, you know, Muscle Man is over. Uh, as as we know it. And yes, they will run some iron super duper muscle challenge race, 70.3, whatever they want to call it. It's got some big long name, but it will be a different event. And the community will adopt that if they choose. They'll adapt to it in various ways. But uh, many of the things that, that made Muscle Man what it is will just go away. And that's sad. My curiosity when I read the story yesterday was, uh, do we think there's enough angst or frustration, I guess, with the sale itself that it could fundamentally impact the viability of whatever that race now becomes in the future? Well, so I've heard the argument made, you better just get behind it so we don't lose it at all, right? Better that we have something than nothing. And I actually think that's a false dilemma because, frankly, if you pay attention to how World Triathlon Corporation works, if you read Wanda Group's financial reports, people must think I love reading financial reports because I go to the county supervisors, I talk about them with Casella. But, you know, these companies are smart. They have strategies and they're public, so they have to release them. So why not take a look, see where they're headed, right? They'll point you in the direction that they're going. So if you if you look and spend some time looking at their corporate documents, um, riveting they, stuff, <laughs> right. just no, riveting stuff. I'm sure stuff. everybody yeah. listening right now wants to I know. know. Glad someone know. does. <laughs> <laughs> they will, you know, invest enough to get their money back probably turn a little profit because it's not, you know, it's not an equipment-heavy investment. It's, it's the, the bones are there. Um, and, then, and then they shut it down. So I'd love to be proven wrong that they actually somehow reverse their business model of decades and keep this race running. Um, but 
that I think would be a really naive prediction, and I'm naive, so I suppose I would like that to be the case. But All right, Ted, are you naive? <laughs> well, I, you know, the, these kinds of things fascinate me because it, you see this happen a lot, where the creator behind something ends up out, uh, oftentimes forced out. In this case, Jeff wasn't forced out; he sold, and then they sold to somebody else. But I mean, the uh, you know, the creators of ESPN were a father and son, they had the idea, they got it started, and at the moment it becomes viable as a money thing, here come all the money people right. in, and now the, you know, there's very often the creative types who have the original ideas aren't really suit and tie business type people to keep it going. So, and, and it just goes into our whole trend that we always talk about, about everything getting bigger. I mean, yeah. it's it's all our, our Small independent stores are going away in favor of Amazon and Walmart and Click and Ship, and now we're seeing it happen with a triathlon. Well, in, I would have to imagine that the sale probably had something to do with how expensive it probably is to manage, insure, and to run an event like that. Um, not saying that selling was the right thing to do, but um, you know, I would just I would just imagine that the normal economic pressures that are on virtually every company mm -hmm. or business that are that's operating were also being exerted in this situation too. Um, disappointing, I guess, to see. Um, but again, it, it kind of goes back to the point, and I think we have a lot of those, you know, it's like that local gem of of restaurant or something. It closes and it's a staple. It's been there for years and years. And the second it closes, everybody goes, oh, what? They closed? Yeah. Well, when was the last time you were there? When was the last time you got passionate about it? When was the last time you talked or saw or whatever the case may be? And I think there's a lot of these different things that people get passively involved with and they're, say, like 50% invested in this thing. And the core group of people who are really keeping it alive is much, much smaller than that. And, and it's putting more pressure and it's costing more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And I just wonder how much of that actually you know, how much of the, the real desire to see this thing keep going in the way that it was, um, if enough of that exists to sort of push back against what WTC might want to do in the future. Well, it's interesting. You see that with a lot of community events. You know, the, the take something like the Waterloo Memorial Day, uh, Celebrate Commemorate, or, or uh, Canal Days, or, or uh, Convention Days in Seneca Falls. Very often, the, the, that passionate core group are the same people and before you know it 25 years have gone by and it's the same group of five people and after 25 years they're going you know what I'm ready to step aside but there's nobody to step in and take those roles I yeah. yes I agree with that I would just like to say though when it comes to muscle man having been both involved in it and then having stepped away for a little bit um, this is not a case, I would say, where the community has been lacking in support, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, this event is what it is because the community was all in. The volunteers are all in. The organizing committee is all in. And as people have stepped away, new people with dynamic energy have stepped in, and it's been great. So I think the real issue, and I think this is why it kind of – this is why it hurts. I mean, I don't know how else to say it. The reason that it hurts is because, yes, 
putting on an event's very expensive, especially an event of that magnitude. Um, you know, that, the Seneca 7, like these are not cheap events to run. However, if it's truly a community event, then there are things you will do in lieu of making money, right? There are things you will do because you just feel it's the right thing to do and you want to sustain something that that brings people happiness, that brings people an ability to celebrate where they live and you know what's what's around. Were the athletes all in? I mean, this triathlon market's so saturated, they've got lots of choices, that Iron Man brand, people get the tattoo, like people are into that. Um, I don't wanna talk about the athletes because I've got my own thoughts. But I wouldn't want the takeaway to be that the community in any way made the sale necessary. This definitely could have continued, um, but if the primary goal is to make a profit, then I can understand the need to sell. I just wish it had come back to people who maybe weren't motivated in that way. I am kind of surprised that there there seemed to be as much blindsidedness associated with this yeah. as there was, because generally speaking something like this isn't worked out overnight so this right. has probably been in the works for what maybe a year or two years it's probably been yeah. a discussion for a while yeah and for for it to have been kept um under wraps for as long as it was until it until it actually the sale was concluded right thoroughly impressive i think in terms of just and not in the good impressive yeah, i was gonna not say in the good i way. understand you don't mean that in that you mean that in the like darth vader impressive kind of way but <laughs> yeah. um you know i i think that and i understand that the that score this who, who sold the race would say in their defense that Iron Man is tight with non-disclosure. They will sue you for anything. I get that. But there was a point before they sold where they could have said to people in the community, hey, we're feeling economic pressure, whatever it was that motivated them to sell. Is there another way out other than what we've all agreed from day one would be something that would never happen? And the fact that that didn't happen, I do think there are a lot of people in the community who feel, I can't think of a word other than betrayed because you think you've got an agreement and then someone does something that you never thought they'd do. But I mean, it's money and that's how it always works. I mean, we're seeing that in, in my business, in, in radio sports broadcast rights. I mean, the, the company that owns the rights for the Syracuse Broadcast owns rights now to 40 or 50 other college companies. Used to be little independent networks. I mean, it's it's what's happening all throughout our economy. Mm -hmm. The the little independents are going away, and pretty soon it's going to be the Amazon.com Iron Man. You know, brought to you by Walmart. I mean, oh, we're just we're, yeah. that that's where we're going. Yeah, and. and you know, you and I have talked about that in some of the, the shows that we've done, those those societal trends and, and the things that we never get to vote on. All of a sudden, all your choices are gone, and you say, when when did we decide this? When did we choose this? Well, yeah, not only that, but how do you stop it? Exactly. Once that once that train gets rolling down, you can't downhill, give in. Yeah, but you can't give in. But well, it, but it that's, comes down to the so no, really though. But that's the fun. So how do you even? Where do you even begin? And you know, maybe in this situation in Geneva, there's there's a bit of an advantage because of the the 
uh, community investment that's already there. Right. But when you're talking about something that the sort of broader the broader issues, it's it's hard to get people energized to be opposed to these things when they're just fighting to survive. No, I know that. I know it is, and I know that corporations always have the upper hand in terms of convenience, cost, you know, that they can economy of scale. I, I get that. But I just feel like people have got to start waking up because if we don't do something, if we don't say anything, if we just say, well, this is the way it is, and I guess I'll make the best of it, make lemonade out of lemons, I mean, that is the attitude that allows this to happen. And some of us have got to be willing to say, not me, I won't participate in that, I'm not going to be part of that system. Um, and then we've got to go out and create something else that's viable that, that exists beside that to give people a choice. So let's talk about another landmark or potentially landmark event that could have happened here in the Finger Lakes or somewhere in upstate New York. Uh, the town of Vernon has mm -hmm. officially denied the uh, appeal to the denial of the permit request for Woodstock 50. That will not be happening. That was allegedly going to be happening in uh, Watkins Glen or the town of Dix, depending on uh, how you want to cut that um, at Watkins Glen International. It, I think it's dead. I think it's really dead this time, guys. Fully, fully dead. Ted, we're not going to have to talk about it anymore on Friday mornings. <laughs> it's done. It's well, over with. I, I stand to earn $100 after the, uh, the event goes by <laughs> because I correctly predicted a few months ago it just didn't smell right from the start. The plan wasn't there. It was hastily thrown together. Um, and it still isn't there. I mean, they just... Even even if Vernon had said yes, the planning board last night, you're a month away, you've sold zero tickets. How many of these bands have already booked those dates and other places? They've been paid. They were paid. I don't know if all of them, but a number of the artists were paid. So it just, you know, it was a great idea, peace, love, Woodstock. And, you know, it's almost like what we were just talking about. Uh, uh, idealism runs smack into corporate America. And oftentimes idealism takes the hit. So I think because of how complicated this issue got and how persistent the organizers were in insisting that it was going to happen when it was set to originally happen is probably going to be the big talking point when, when people look back at this a year from now, two years from now. But I still think that my, my, original, uh, my original hypothesis that if the communities that were, that were allegedly or possibly going to be hosting – um, were just a little more receptive to the idea and just a little more open to some of the acts that were going to be uh, that were slated to be coming to Woodstock that this would have gone a lot smoother and I think we would be talking about an event that yes may have some mismanagement issues but also would have still happened um, but don't you think part of the issue is that you've got a promoter and a director that's coming in from elsewhere without I mean to go to Ted's point without a solid plan like if any I mean it's like, that's like events 101 have your location understand how whether or not it can accommodate your anticipated crowd size I mean if you can't check all those boxes before you come in that doesn't give confidence to a local community that you're going to be able to manage the multitude of other things that go way beyond just those initial logistics okay so then and I I was just going to say, I think increasingly communities are just leery of having 75,000 people dumped on their doorstep. You know, if I'm Watkins Glen, 
where are these people going to go? I, I mean, you, you, great, you love the money that they m may or may not spend, but if they're going to be camping for three days at the track, you know, how much does that actually do for the downtown economy? Well, and who do you get a hold of when things go wrong? Right. If the people putting it on are from across the country, you know, something happens, there people like accountability. They want to know if I've got an issue, I can go knock on this person's door and say, "Hey, your music festival is doing so." I mean, we've seen that not to I understand it's not Woodstock, right? But uh, the Linden Street, closing down Linden Street and having music in downtown Geneva, right? The thing that allowed some of the people who were initially opposed to that to get on board through city council discussions was the idea that you had James Emery Alkin, Dave Linger, a couple other people come to the podium and say, if there is an issue, I will be here. I, here's my number. Here's how we can address this. And you don't get that all the time if you've got someone saying, yeah, I got 75,000 people right behind me and I'll be around maybe, you know. You don't get that with a large event period. Right. But that's Watkins, go, when, when NASCAR comes to town every year, nobody says anything about the crowd that they're attracting or the audience that's but coming But they've into done town. it before and they have a, no pun intended, track <laughs> record. I mean, if you've done this a few times, then you say, okay, we know these people know how to run a race. But here comes Woodstock guy from 50 years ago. Nobody knows who he is. And we're going to have all these bands and all these people, and it's going to be great. And I, I forgot the term that, that Vernon used, the first application. They called it some adjective shockingly incomplete or grotesquely incomplete or something. Because it was kind of like, well, what are you going to do about this? I don't know. Yeah. It's interesting because... And of course, by the time we got to Vernon and we're talking about Vernon, most of the big players who were involved had pulled out or had disconnected themselves. Um, but initially, there were large companies that were going to be taken care of, like the festival, the acts, right. et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So in theory, I know Michael Lang has taken it on the chin this, enti this entire process, and he is clearly to blame for a, a large portion of it. Um, but I, I don't see how... You can, you can, anyone can objectively believe that one guy is the sort of messiah of, of this 75,000 person yeah, no, three no, no. day music fest. It's just not reality. I mean, it would never be like that anyway. No, right, right. Um, I, I just think that there are more, there are issues at play here that a lot of people just aren't willing to talk about. And, and it's disappointing in a lot of different ways. And, and I hope eventually that the next time this type of thing comes around, that people are willing to have a, a well, better what, conversation so what, about so it. So you think, because I hadn't considered this, you think that part of the issue was that people didn't like the music? So that, I'm going to say this. How many people, and I don't, know the, I don't know the numbers right off the top of my head, how many people come into town for, uh, for NASCAR race at Watkins Glen International? How many tens of thousands come into town? Would we say that it's probably safely between like fifty sure. and a hundred thousand? Yeah, I think so. Assuming, okay, that's okay. But when a music festival that's going to be bringing young people, a diverse crowd, mm -hmm. and a crowd that doesn't look like the people who live in rural Schuyler County, right. oh, well, I just, now I, I feel terrible how, for not I picking up on that. Right. Well, okay, and this has been the thing that it, this is the pattern that I've it. 
it looked very clear when you when you looked at when you looked at Schuyler County, and I'm not talking about the county. The county, I think, did everything that they were supposed to do and how they were supposed to act. Somebody turns in a bad permit. You can't. Right. You can't accept the damn thing. That's a shame on the the organizers. But I think when you're talking about the communities, when you're talking about the people, I think it's very hard when when we're having all of these discussions about about bias and and what's deeply implanted in our brains and in the recesses of our mind or you know the minds of those in general um i don't see how you can't apply the same sort of thought process to this uh, you know if if a true say this if a very true to form woodstock filled with nothing but uh basically memorial bands of those who performed originally and it was just going to be a bunch of cover cover bands and whatever's left right. of the original lineup um and it was going to, it was expected to draw the same crowd. It would not have been opposed. It would have happened. And we would not be having this conversation. I understand your point, but I don't think I agree with it in this case. I really, I really don't think it was that. I don't think it was that we don't want those people coming. I think it was more, what if 75,000 people show up? Where are we going to put them? Those questions weren't really answered. What if it's more than that? What if it turns out to be 150,000? You know, what's the, where are they going to stay? How much garbage is there going to be? How much damage is that going to cause around town or anything? The presumption, yeah. though, should be that they know the answer to that question based on the fact that they already host one event annually that draws that kind of large, dynamic crowd. But, I mean, that's the track. Again, I, right. I think it's a different thing. I mean, they know how to run auto races, and they know what kind of people come to auto races. And, 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 and the other thing is, too, that's, for the most part, in and out. I mean, people may stay around town for a day or two, but it's a one-day event. This was going to be like a three-day thing right. with people camping, which creates waste and clean water issues and things. And, and I just think that those things were inadequately addressed, if at all, in the plan. I, yeah, I mean, I initially, when I heard the idea, my whole thing was, I know how many times people have to use the bathroom during the Seneca 7 and how hard it is in some of the areas near Watkins Glen to get adequate service, and I just thought, I don't know how they're going to handle that. But that being said, I don't know what the factors were that, that did this in, but I appreciate that you thought of it that way, and shame on me for not even considering that. So, yeah, that probably was at work. And at I think level. in general, if you look at it, I, I there aren't too many of these big... There was an era, kind of late 70s, early 80s, of the big jams that took place, and I just think there's a reluctance on a lot of people's part. I know there's a couple still around the country, but I, I think the era of the big... 100,000 people, 25 bands at a big outdoor venue kind of thing. I think it's past its time. Are you saying Lollapalooza is over? Well, no. I mean, that's that's an example of <laughs> okay. one. I mean, there's a few, or Coachella or whatever. There, yeah. There's a few of those. But I just think in general, a lot of communities are just saying, I don't want 100,000 people yeah. to descend on my town for the weekend. Well, they look a lot different now, right? Well, like the, the, the festivals are much different. They're geared towards more towards like Coachella using that as an example. It was not, It's more mainstream now, but it was a lot of EDM music and, and a, a different yeah. genre than the traditional sort of music festivals that people were accustomed to in the 70, 60s, 70s, and 80s, we'll say. Um, 
but yeah, that's just that. That is one of those stories. I think, I think it's finally done now. I don't think there will be any more. I don't think Michael Lang and company can say that this thing is still going to happen now. Being a month away, it is the seventeenth. Greg Cotterill of July. says it's going to be in his backyard. So that's <laughs> that's it's Greg's stock Greg, is what we're down to now. Greg, Greg can have it. Um, <laughs> So there was this really interesting story, and, and we'll only talk about it for a couple minutes because I want to have Peter Mantius uh, in studio uh, later this month or next month to talk about it. Um, there is this push to develop uh, a portion of the Seneca Army Depot. Earl Martin, who, who uh, bought 7,000-plus acres of, of that uh, property, um, is attempting to get a plan pushed through that would allow him to move uh, gal- an iron galvanizing plant, essentially a manufacturing facility, uh, to the former airstrip area um, on the depot, would promise to bring a lot of jobs. Um, but there are some environmental concerns, and that's what uh, Mantis is reporting focused on. So I-, I guess the question that I had sort of bouncing around when when I read the story was, how do we get to a place where we're balancing between uh, the the desire to to provide economic development in a place like Seneca County and Central Seneca County, which desperately needs it, while also being very aware of the potential environmental implications. And are we are we rushing in some cases where we we just sort of oh this plan looks okay yeah let's do it. Um, of course there are exceptions where the incinerator is an exception where a lot of red flags were raised right off the bat, but this doesn't seem to be one of those where a lot of the environmental concerns were either later to the table. I mean, this has been something that Martin has been talking about doing now for two and a half, three-ish years, I want to say, since he, since he actually made the purchase. This was, this was his intent from day one when he made his pitch to the IDA and the Board of Supervisors way back when in either 15 or 16. This was part of it. This was, this was part of that. So um, you mean I, this particular project or manufacturing in general? An iron galvanizing okay. manufacturing okay. facility. This was, I mean, it is his business, Seneca Ironworks. Okay. I mean, the, right. the, the intent was to move his business, okay. his manufacturing, yep. from where he is now in Fayette to uh, to that that okay. site. And it's just interesting because at the time it was, and you know, I would even say that there were some folks who are maybe now opposed to it, who were all for it then, because of the positive impact that uh, private ownership could have in terms of the the white deer mm-hmm. um, but now you have this these concerns basically because questions weren't asked initially so where how do we how do we feel at this point in the process watching this sort of play out in slow real time it's not happening very quickly <laughs> well it's interesting because i think it kind of ties back to the opening topic about the HABs, like, I'm not clear that our Finger Lakes region has any good sense of, I don't want to say they don't have good sense, I'm saying they do not have a good sense of um, what kinds of environmental threats are most threatening. I don't I don't know if that's I don't mean to be redundant, but the but the idea is 
who knows our region? Who is looking at our region and saying, you know what? If you're in a region with a freshwater with freshwater lakes that provide water to X number of hundreds of thousands of people, these are the kinds of protections you're going to need for that water source to stay clean. You know, and that includes agricultural protections, looking at the issue of fertilizer and runoff. Like, I, I, I'm just trying to figure out when the Finger Lakes region is going to take seriously its identity in total and say, we need a plan. We need a plan not just for what we're going to do to deal with what's going on right now, but an environmental protection plan for the unique surroundings that we find ourselves in. Like, obviously, an incinerator makes no sense to most of us, right? But not everybody and why don't we just have a plan why did it take proposing an incinerator for us to say oh yeah we shouldn't have an incinerator if you're talking about air and water quality it seems like you could come up with a fairly comprehensive list of things that would be directly in opposition to the future of a healthy finger lakes but we don't we're always we're always responding after the fact we're always saying like we want this we don't want that how many times? I mean, we're back to our trends again. It, it's the, and I don't know how we change it, but the way our government is set up is it, whether it's at the city level, state level, federal level, is to respond to today's crisis right. rather than stepping back and saying, I, "I think that makes perfect sense to have a plan." Now, you also you have to look at each thing on its own individual merits. So before just saying, "Oh my God, a metal plant, we can't have that," we need to know what this thing does what it emits. I mean, Jackie's going to kick me out of the Liberals Club for saying this. I I didn't have any particular real problem with the incinerator because it just didn't seem to me like anything from that was going to get into any water that I could tell. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think there's... So, so there's sometimes... Environmentalists tend to just get really excited and, and fired up before they really sit back and say, okay, is there a problem with this? So, I mean, if he wants to build his metal plant, then we should take a look at what its effects would be. Now, what you said, when we really should have done this, was years ago when that sale came about. Right. But it's always about jobs. Anytime, I mean, you wave that magic Mm -hmm. wand of jobs. To go back to the the, the show in Vernon, uh, the story just came out the other day that Vernon Downs got a bunch of money from, I think, the county... And in turn, we're supposed to create X number of jobs. Guess what? They haven't. Yeah, are I they going to have to pay it back? And nev- no one ever claws it no. back. No one ever pays it back when no. they miss the jobs. And that's been one of my criticisms it. of all these big economic development plans, is there are always promised jobs, yep. and they never meet those promises. Yep. Yeah. Well, and you know, the other thing, something, something you said that, I mean, all of what you said was interesting. I don't, I don't mean that. But there was one thing that jumped out at me. And, of course, as soon as I said that, it escaped me. Um, but I did want to say that, yes, we have a lot less government governing than we should. We have a lot of politicking, right? This is the issue of the moment. How do you feel? Take the temperature of the community. Which way is the wind blowing? Now I'm really into that. And not a lot of, like, policy wonks who sit around in their living room, as my kids will complain about all the time, saying, well, what about this? Is anybody thinking about this? Right. And, and that's frustrating to me because um, 
I do think the incinerator was a clear no for the area, not because incinerators full stop are bad, but because we are not some of the European nations of the world that are taking all of our trash issues seriously enough that incineration has become a responsible solution. But that, that was, we talked about that when that came up. But, you know, I think that, again, there is no comprehensive plan. There, right. That's what we talk about all the time yes. in, in our conversations is, what do we want Geneva, what do we want America, what do we want New York State to look like yes. in 30, 50 years yep. from now, yep. instead of worrying about it 50 years from now. Right. Because all of a sudden these changes, these little incremental changes happen, and we get to a place where we don't want to be, and we go, we should have done something about that. Right. And for all the flack that every indigenous community takes, especially in this area, can we just say that the seventh generation philosophy, this this wisdom of indigenous decision making that said we shouldn't do anything today without considering the implications of it 30 years down the line, is the way we should be governing. No one, I mean, you know, back when and since you're here, Ted, I feel like I have to go back to the blog days because that was so fun coming on with Chip to your show. You know, she used to raise hell on my show. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, when Chip used to demand before there was any borrowing for the city, we don't want to just know what the debt service is going to be next year. How much does this cost in total? We want that number before we take a vote. People should have to consent and say, I won't be here. I won't be on this board. You know, I don't, I'm not saying it in some existential way, but I won't be on this board when this is done, but I am binding the city to this amount of spending. It's the same thing with environmental stuff. If you take these projects as a one-off, no one's looking at the cumulative effect. And if you just wave the jobs banner, nobody is asking, will those jobs be here in even five years, 10 years, 20 years, 30 years? Not that you can guarantee it, but is it worth whatever it is that we're going to give up to get to what this hopeful promised outcome is? And I, I don't know if it's that people don't want to have that conversation. They are not. Um, it's difficult. I mean, well, we, what is it? We put jobs up on the altar is right. what it is. We it, Jobs. All you have to say is jobs. Right. And you can put a, you know, a nuclear waste dump in the depot. Yep. And if there's enough jobs... You know all the organizations that are going to be in favor of it. Mm -hmm. and, and it's interesting, too, what you were talking about, the spending. The reason we have so much borrowing spending is precisely that. This city council can borrow the money, and it's the next city council 10 years down the line that has to worry about it. Right, and, right. And that's what politicians figured that out a long time ago. Yes. We can borrow the money, and... By the time the, the debt comes due, we're gone. Well, you know, let me just put in my plug. This has become my line, and I'm sticking to it. This is why I think more governments should be run by single moms, because, you know, we understand that you can't keep buying stuff based on what the payment is, what the monthly payment is, without looking at your overall indebtedness. And if governments took more of that holistic picture of saying, I can't just do it piecemeal day by day. I've got to have a strategy for where this ship is going. We wouldn't be in half these problems. That's crazy talk. You should go back where you came from. <laughs> I've been told that. I've been told that city councilor who will remain nameless, but he is the deputy mayor now, you know, telling me to go back to the kitchen. So everyone, you know, this is, we'll get there. We'll get to that. But anyway.
Well, that's yes. the, that's, the that's last my topic crazy for talk the day. for the and day. We've got about eight minutes left, and I, I I want to basically we've all talked individually um, about where the city of Geneva is going now. They Ward Six has has a counselor, yep, um, temporarily until the election. Mm-hmm. Um, I think a little too late. You're Absolutely. talking about yes. two. I mean, I said it. I said it when I was on with you last week. Three decision cycles mm-hmm. and the election happens and it's it's over with like then then you're going to have a new transition happening and how effective is that person going to be in the next three months i'm sure they will do great work but it is the point this should have happened three months ago four months ago not now yeah i mean it obviously it should have happened a year ago i mean with all due respect to to counselor greco um when he made clear that he was having difficulty attending meetings. Um, you know, I, I, I think a responsible council might have said, um, we're going to have to think about what we do when if we're faced with a vacancy so that we're not taken by surprise, so that, you know, how has this been done in the past? Um, and then that way be able to signal to the public when a vacancy occurs for any reason, to be able to say, this is the process, process starts now, you can expect resolution within this window, and here are gonna be the steps. I don't understand why communicating with the public and trying to do things in a logical way, a sequenced way, seems to be like, I don't know, it's the one thing governments hate i mean it's like if you suggest reason it's like you're speaking a foreign language i don't i don't understand why why it's so difficult i don't either and you're both looking at me like i have the answer i just i i have to defer to jackie because i i don't know a whole lot of the issues involved i i don't know why it took so long whether Nobody wanted it. Was it was bumbling. Or couldn't agree on who it should be, and I know there's all kinds of issues involved in Ward Six that that I'm not really on top of. So, and, and that's where we're going to leave it. Ted, as always, let our listeners know where they can hear you or where they know that voice from. I'm on the Finger Lakes Morning News on Finger Lakes News Radio in Geneva. That's 95.9 FM and 12:40 AM WGVA, and in Auburn, it's 98.1 FM and 15:90 AM WAUB. Wait, you guys are on FM, too? We are on FM. It's been only 10 years or so now. (laughs) Go figure. Hey, that's all the time we have for today. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on YouTube, Spotify, and Apple Podcasts. Uh, You can also download the FingerLakesOne.com app for the latest news, headlines, and more, even podcasts like this one. Uh, I will see you back here next week. Bye, guys.